one another's as we're digging into is how was that for a transition? It's no transition, no clutch, just the one another's provide us handles on how we are to walk out uh, what Jesus said about love. And we have done serve, honor, stop passing judgment, instruct, and then Pastor Barry exquisitely the last two weeks did how we are to accept one another and then live in harmony with one another. And today, we wanna talk about love. How do we love one another? So we love God with our everything, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love our neighbor, those who don't know Christ, don't, who don't believe what we believe, who see the world differently. We love them as we would want ourselves to be loved. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, the golden rule. And then we love other Christ followers by a new commandment that Jesus gave his disciples uh, at the Last Supper. In John 13, 34 to 35, he said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, and here's what's new about it. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another's. Direct translation, just as I agape you, you are to agape one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. If, everyone say if. If. if, you have love, if you have agape, one for another. And so today what I want us to do is I want us to lean into some touchy topics, but I want us to talk about your love ethic. What do you believe about love? How are you being formed and shaped to think about love in the world in which we live? Each of us needs to be loved. We all need love, and every single one of us have been wounded from others not loving us the way that God loves us, okay? So that is a human condition. All of us need love, and every single one of us have been wounded by others who failed to love us in a way that God loves us. They treated us in a way that the first fallen Adam did and not in the way that Jesus does. And that doesn't matter whether they call themselves Christian or not. How many of you know the moment you give your life to Jesus doesn't necessarily mean you know how to love others the way Jesus loves you? This is a process. This is the aim that, of our lives. If I would actually give you one aim as a, as a brother in Christ, I would say at the end of your life, place it as an aim that you love others more the way Jesus does than the way you do right now. Place this as an aim of your heart in every relationship that you have. Lord, teach me to love others the way that you love me. Enroll me into this school. Allow me not to make excuses for why I don't. Lord, harness my steps into this space of training to be more like Christ. An issue today is this, is when it comes to love, we as a North American culture, um, which is all I'm qualified to speak of as this culture, um, we oversteer towards our feelings. We oversteer towards a romantic sense of love and we oversteer towards sex. Feelings, romance, and sex in the world in which we live are the highest expressions of love. Pause, they're not in the scriptures but they are in the world in which you and I live. Which in turn, if we are formed and shaped by a different ethic, it can hinder us from loving others the way that Jesus loves us. Here's an insight that you may have today from the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about, and I want you to be honest with, you know, of course you're not gonna say it out loud, but I want you to be honest with this, and then I will be honest right after. When it comes to relationships, both with God and with others. 
I want you to think about your friendships. Maybe I want you to think about your romantic relationships. If you are married, you can include that in there as well. I want you to think about if this applies to your relationship with kids. If it doesn't, just exclude it. I want you to think about all the dynamics of all of your relationships to this point of your life. And here's the insight, here's the question that I wish to ask you. Are you more prone to see what others are doing and what you have been given? Or are you more prone to see what others are not doing and what you wish they would do? This gives you insight into how you see and how you are formed. There are individuals who are stuck today in their relationship with God because they no longer see what God has done, their relationship is defined exclusively by, in their mind, what he didn't do at that moment in time. And I'm not diminishing that, nor am I being dismissive of that. I am just saying, if we tend to focus only on what isn't, we miss usually so much goodness that is. And I only know this because I am being healed layer by layer by layer. If you have a drive for things to be better, to be good, you are vulnerable to seeing what isn't or what isn't or what could be rather than celebrating what is. And I have, uh, my heart is constantly formed in every sphere to see what isn't and to see what could be, which can lead to dissatisfaction and discontentment, which usually do not flow from our our hearts as expressions of love, okay? So it's just an insight and it's a confession. I am healed, I am being healed, I am in this place. So when I set the bullseye on my target, at the end of my life, it's not that I wanna be dismissive or ignorant of the things that aren't, but what I want to be able to see is, I wanna be able to see where God is at work in the whole, not just where I want him to work. God is always at work, he's always at work. It's just where. Lord, give me eyes to see what it is that you're doing. I want you to imagine yourself that somebody has gifted you today a cottage. Some of you are like, I don't want a cottage. It's just an illustration. <laughs> but I want you to imagine that you are gifted a cottage. And in the process of clearing out that cottage, I mean, what a gift, it's by the lake. And the lake is warm. I don't know how, it just is. Because <laughs> it's fictitious. You're gifted a cottage, it's the picturesque scene that you want it to be at. And you go into the attic and you find a painting. And you think like, oh, I don't really love this painting, but it looks kind of old, it looks kind of antique -y. I wonder if it has any value. And so you take the painting and you bring it to one of those like antique road shows. You bring it to somebody who knows how to authenticate the painting, and lo and behold, in the cottage that you have been gifted, you actually have discovered a painting that was an original Monet. Some of you are sitting here today saying, what's a Monet? I don't have no, any idea what Monet is. Well, it's a really, really old, he's an, art, he's an artist that's dead. His paintings have incredible value. And you find, not only are you gifted a cottage, but in the cottage you find this Monet painting that is gonna change your life now forever because of the value. This painting has tremendous value. The painting has tremendous value not because the paint and the canvas is of greater value than any other paint or canvas. The only reason this painting has the value that it does is because it is attached and authenticated to the creator. 
I say this sensitively. Some of you are constantly trying to change whom God has created you to be, to be lovable to somebody else rather than being under, rather than understanding that your value is, is rooting and abiding in. Not that you're perfect, you're just a canvas and paint just like me, but my value is in who created me, not in just what I do. Some of you are striving to be loved because you cannot accept that God just loves you because he is love. You are more valuable than a Monet painting. Some of you are like, amen. <laughs> and I'd like one of those too, please. <laughs> in fact, if I were to take any one of us and we were to become exquisite painters in his style, we could paint and replicate the identical painting and hang it on a wall but its authentication to the creator would make this one of value and this one not so much value. And so we wanna to talk today when it comes to love is how do we determine value? When I was in my 20s and I was struggling in my faith, I remember sitting in university. I was at Carleton University, dot, dot, dot. It's the only school that it would accept me. <laughs> <laughs> But I said yes. And I remember being, you think sermons are long and boring, man. Try lectures. Uh -huh. Hey, it's a three hour class. Like, I would scream sometimes as a university student, like, just mix in an inflection in your voice. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning, students. Uh, you turn to page 499, and as we dig into this here, you'll see that the medical, like, not even an inflection. Mix in something, something. Nope. And now class is done, students. That's going to be great three hours. And if you read chapters one to uh, 407 by tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, and retain that? No, I'm not trying to dismiss university. I'm just saying it was the most boring thing I ever did in all of my life. <laughs> Some of you are like, no, there's other things more boring. I dare you to find it. <laughs> but I was sitting there, and um, I was there for an education. Um, and a professor said something in the way that I said it, and the professor said something and it terrified me because God used it in a beautiful way to get a hold of my heart. The professor said this, no one knows you like you know you. And I was sitting there and I was like, wait a minute. Nobody knows me like I know me. And instantly I felt remarkably alone. And I also felt all of the weight of self-definition on my shoulders because I had no idea who I was. I knew who other people wanted me to be, but I didn't know if that was me. And it was a professor articulating the highest value of truth that they could that began to steer me back to Jesus. I began to reflect even I couldn't articulate it then that the biblical story we can talk about Genesis chapter 1 that in the beginning God always was created the world 
which means that, again, there's science and all that lovely stuff that we can get into, but at its base level, it means that God made, God loves, and God is sustaining this world, including the people of the world, which means me, which means the origin and the essence of my life does not begin with me, it begins with a God who created me. And I begin to begin wooed again to the biblical story of what it is to have value because of the creator, not because of the created thing, not because I'm successful, not because I have a degree, not because I have an A. I never saw A's, I don't even know what those are. But (laughs) that my identity was not rooted in what I could earn, it was rooted in what a creator isn't bestowed upon me. That you and I are created in the image and likeness of God from love. And what could love look like and life look like? As we self-determine, when it comes to love, we increasingly live in a world, including sadly the church, that oversteers towards feelings, towards romance, towards sex, and it understeers towards a biblical understanding of loving one another where the key distinction is that we are brothers and we are sisters in Christ. Do you know what brothers and sisters is the language of? It's not the language of your family, which may have been like, golly, my brothers and sisters, they were terrible. Or they were great. That's not the language of the, that's not what the Bible is getting you to think about what were your sibling relationships. The Bible is actually saying is the love of God and how we're to love one another is from a gifted place of equality that you are my brother and you are my sister because you are in Christ, not because of what you earn. That whether you come in here and your bank account is stacked or whether it has zero, we are to treat each other the same because you are my brother and you are my sister in Christ. It is this place of equality. This is what the scriptures are speaking of. First John chapter four, verse 21. Whoever loves God must also love his brother, his sister in Christ. And brother and sisterly love focuses on equality and mutual satisfaction one for another where our feelings and our romance and our understanding of sexuality is often focused on personal gratification, satisfaction, happiness, fulfillment, treating one another as objects and not as objects created in the image and likeness of God. So how we as the church are called to love one another is actually a call to rehumanize, not dehumanize one another. And it is why when people are abused in church by those who are supposed to love, it is the worst sound in the world because it reinforces the language of dehumanization. You are never a product to be consumed. You are a whole person to be loved. And first Peter clarifies how Jesus precisely loves us in this fashion and he calls us to do the same. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. How do you purify your soul? By obedience to the truth. So now we're gonna begin to dance a little bit in it. If your view of love is feelings, romance, and sexuality, then it's not gonna sound romantic what I'm going to begin to teach through, but I'm telling you it is a higher way to love than feelings, sex, and romance. Here's all I know. I don't always feel loving. How many of you, it doesn't take you long not to feel loving? Someone just has to say something to you and you're like, you're awesome and I'm gonna come up one side of you and I'm gonna come down the other side of you. 
we live with the mantra of follow your heart. That is terrible advice. (laughs) In some ways, it's beauty. In other ways, it's utter, utter brokenness. Let me just be honest. I have followed my heart and said things to other people that to this day I wish I could take back. But I followed my heart. It felt right in the moment, and here's the scary thing. In some instances, I won an argument, but I destroyed a relationship. Yeah. And I did this by following my heart. My heart, maybe yours isn't, but mine, it can actually lead me to beautiful things, but it's also deceitfully wicked. And sometimes, sometimes, following it is the worst decision that I could ever make. You see, we use this word love in North America for everything from hot sauce to parents to romantic interests or spouses. Man, like I love hot sauce and I love Lori. Like it's like on that level, man. It's not, I'm just saying, we just use this one word. Uh, Not the Greeks, they had four. And if you wanna read a book on it, you could read The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. It's a good book. Uh, In the Old Testament, they had a singular word for Hebrew, very much like our North American culture uh, for love. It's called Ahab. Um, But again, the New Testament, there's two Greek words, so we're gonna talk about them. In Hebrew, the word was Ahab. When this describes a variety of intense close emotional bonds. So Abraham ahabbed Isaac. He loved his son. Jacob ahabbed Joseph more than his other sons. Turn the person beside you and say, that's not good parenting. <laughs> right there. That's, that's, just, that's just bad parenting right there. Okay? It's, you know, it's, don't do that. that. That creates issues. But this Hebrew word could also mean that Isaac loved or ahabbed Rebecca. And that's a different way than he loved others. Okay, so it's this singular word kind of like we have in English. Not, not so in the New Testament or the Greek. And the two key words that you see in the New Testament are the word agape. Everyone say agape. And this is the word agape, which means God's unconditional God-type love. Okay? Which is this. Agape love does a few things. It always seeks the good of the beloved, not the person. It always seeks your best, okay? It seeks the good of the beloved and is a preferential love that is chosen and acted out by the will. God is love. God is faithful. It doesn't mean that God always feels loving towards us. He doesn't, he, we are created in the image and likeness of God, so with all the range of our emotions, there is, yes, understanding of God within that, but I am grateful that God doesn't not just move by his feelings or none of us would be here. God is love and he moves for our benefit. He moves on behalf of the beloved. He moves from a sense of his will and his duty, not just feelings. Like if I, if I was ever at a wedding and somebody stood in front of the, the bride or the groom and we were here and they were like, I love you as the highest star in the sky, so my love is for you and as the deepest depth of the ocean. And as a pastor and I heard a vow like that, I'm like, gosh, that's pretty dark down there. I don't know if we're gonna go there, but there's the deepest depths of the ocean, so my love will be to you. And sometimes as a minister, I'm standing here listening to this beautiful poetry and I'm just thinking, good luck. 
Good luck. Good luck. When some write their own vows, in my head, I'm standing there and I'm like, man, it's beautiful. You may want to pull that back a little bit, like, I promise. And then like three weeks later, this person doesn't put the toothpaste on right. This person never picks up their underwears. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't say that incorrectly. Underwears meaning plural, they're everywhere. Not like, hey, nice underwears. I know it's singular what you're wearing, but anyways, it, all of a sudden it just becomes about the minute things. Like, like hypothetically, when you open a cupboard in the kitchen, close it after, for goodness sakes. <laughs> Walk in there, it's a bang, it's a bang. Gives me opportunities to grow in love. <laughs> but agape love is not this romantic love like where I always feel it floating on butterflies. It's not what it is. It's higher. From a sense of, from a sense of covenant and duty and commitment. But again, it, it doesn't get like a wedding if it was like, I don't feel that I love you but from duty I choose to love you. Everybody would be like, yeah. What are you doing right now? Now I get at the marriage, that's probably not great, but I promise every couple will have a moment where they wake up or they go, I don't know if I love you right now. And what holds you in that morning? If your ethic of love is feelings, you is in trouble. I love all of my kids and my kids love me but we don't only feel love for each other all the time. And it's mutual, they don't always feel love for me because I am a moron with a capital M sometimes. No, that's truthful. But our love is not rooted in feelings. It is rooted in our commitment to one another as a family. So when my feelings wane, I have a higher ethic of love. The next, though, is the Bible word you can have often see is this word phileo. Everyone say phileo. Phileo fish? Sorry, it was like low-hanging fruit right there. It's not that at all. That's a fillet of fish, not a phileo of fish. Phileo, though, signifies friendship or fondness or affection or delight. You know when you're just like, I'll do it in a guy sense, but you're just hanging with your friends and you're just like, all you have is like, you're just my brother. Like you just have this fondness, there's like, bring it in, give me a hug. Like I've seen people do that, I never wanna do that. But <laughs> I've seen, like, like, there's that, right, there is that sense, or maybe if you're girls and you're like, you're just my girlfriend, like you're just, you're just my girlfriend, and you just dig into it. It is this family type of love that is all about feelings and personal attachment and, you know, and delight and wonderful, wonderful things. And so the Bible's not being dismissive. Yeah, man, you've used feelings in love. There's wonderful expressions of love, but I love how the Greeks tease it out, the difference between when it's agape and when it's phileo, not just love hot sauce, love everyone. Sometimes it's helpful to know we're talking about different things. And so God commands us from benevolence and duty and commitment to show agape love towards other followers of Jesus. And we can't be commanded though to show phileo love because feelings can't be commanded. 
But when I don't feel something, once again, it doesn't mean it's not there. I just move to a higher ethic of love and I don't move to a higher ethic of love in my own strength. I do it by abiding in God's agape love for me that when I am least lovable, God still loves me. And from this source and strength and security, it enables me to grow in loving others when they're least lovable. Imagine with me for a moment if every single child can be agape loved in church, safe and not abused. Imagine with me if in the Church of Canada there was not another story of a minister who was called to agape love one of his congregants and did not use their power in an abusive way When Jesus says, the way that I love you, this is how you're to love one another. Life Center, we don't lower the bar with what Jesus expects of us. Where we fall short, we pray that he holds us and helps us to raise up a standard. Let me lean into a few things and then I'm gonna dip out. One of the most deformed One of the most natural, but yet deformed expressions of love is when love becomes lust. Exactly. (laughs) And I want you to hear what Jesus says. I want to say a few words and we're gonna finish. Everyone who looks at a woman, this is Jesus' context, you can change the context if you're a woman. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his what? His heart. Follow your heart. Jesus wouldn't say that. Watch what Jesus says. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Notice what it doesn't say. If you're struggling with lust, it's what she's wearing. Don't do that. Don't do that. What she's marrying may be her issue, has nothing to do with yours. Jesus said, where lust is, take responsibility for it. Don't shift the blame to someone else. For it is better that you lose one of your members in your whole body and be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. Jesus is actually saying that when deformed love becomes lust, it is actually deforming us in such a way that our expression of love is hell on earth. This is what he's saying. So he's saying take responsibility for it. This is exactly what he said. I one time was in a conference and the guy was in his 20s and he was single and he was struggling with lust, porn, and masturbation. Some of you were like falling asleep and you heard me say that and you were like, what the heck did he just say over there? (laughs) And he read this scripture and he took it seriously. And here's what he did. Didn't pluck his eye out, didn't cut his hand off. Jesus is speaking in metaphors here. But what he did realize is that most of the time when I struggle with sin, it's in my room, closed door, when I'm alone. You know what he did? He went home and he took his door off this hinges. every screen out of his room and you know what he was bored out of his mind but this is the next thing that he did that blew me away 
he began to enroll himself in agape love. See, when it comes to love, yeah, Jesus may need to set you free from something and you may need to take the door and take the screens out. You may need to do all those things. Sure. But it's not, life isn't meant to be white knuckled. What he began to say is, Lord, would you begin to allow me to see every single, in his instance, woman as my sister in Christ? Because pornography has deformed me to see them as an object of my sexual satisfaction. And Lord, would you begin to allow me to see them as my sister in Christ? And would you begin to, the way that you love me, begin to transform and renew my mind and my heart to see others the way that you see them? How do you overcome a lust problem? Yeah, you may have to do some things in the natural, but you need to also enroll in God training you how to see others the way he sees them. You don't so much get rid of lust, you replace it with biblical godly love. God created sex as a gift. Yet as humans, Jesus never expressed love sexually. Yet he never lived his life, or I should say, yet he lived his life completely secure in his Father's love, and he loved others completely. Jesus never lacked, he never withheld, and he never misdirected love. You do not need to be married to be fully secure in love. He never took, he never manipulated, he never abused others, child, male, or female, or adult, never. Jesus loved in a way that we too are to love one another. Jesus, whether it was towards his father, men, women, or children, always showed love by seeking the good of the beloved. Okay, here's the challenge. 1 John 3, verse 11. Golly, I'm going late. For this is the message that we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Verse 18. Little children, here's the challenge. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, here's what I want you to underline. God is greater than our heart. Do you believe that? Follow your heart? No. Follow the one that is greater than your heart. When your heart broken, follow the one who is greater than your heart. I'm not dismissing the heartbreak. When you are feeling love, celebrate it, but follow the one who is greater. When you're not feeling love, follow the one who is greater. And he knows everything. So our love ethic is God is greater than our heart. He, not we, knows everything. I'm going to invite you to locate your communion elements. And so we love one another by trusting that God is greater than our feelings. That he knows everything, we don't. So when it comes to love, I don't self-determine. I trust God. I abide in his love, and then from love, I love others from duty and commitment and not just feelings. I see others, including my spouse, as equal brothers and sisters in Christ. I grow in expressing God's love for others by placing them as the beloved as beneficiaries. We love, we agape, because he first loved us.
God showed his love for us that while we were sinners, he died for us. And we remember this by being welcomed to his table. Listen to the words that we say each communion. They're the opening words. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, you think he felt like love after being betrayed? No. When his phileo love failed, his agape love helped. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, every one of us here at home have betrayed him. When he had given thanks, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take it and eat it. And as often as you do, do it in remembrance of After supper, he took the cup and said it was representative of his new covenant. New commandment, love one another the way I love you. New covenant. That to love others the way that Jesus loves us. Beneath all of our issues is this one thing called sin. And it needs to be dealt with. Not excused, not dismissed, not diminished. Sin separates us from God. And either we trust to be our own saviors or we trust in Christ as savior. That's it. So in this moment, we don't work to become lovable for God again. We receive God's love which forgives our sins. So Father, though our sins are as scarlet as this juice, in you, maybe be whiter than snow.